0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, October 23rd. In today's news, the US logs more than 73,000 new daily coronavirus infections, our most since July. President Trump issues a sweeping order to remove civil service protections for federal workers. And Russia continues to pose a more potent threat for election interference than Iran. But first, the big idea. In their second and final debate, President Trump tried to cast Joe Biden as a scandal plagued politician who failed to get things done over decades in office, and Biden sought to portray Trump as a demagogue who criminally abused immigrants and mishandled the coronavirus pandemic. With the two candidates electronically muted for portions of the night, the constant interruptions from the first debate were replaced by a clearer contrast between their competing views for the country. When Trump tried to accuse Biden of making money from China, the former vice president pointed out that the president has a bank account in that country and has failed to disclose his income tax returns despite five years of promises to do so. When Trump argued that stock markets would crash if Biden were elected, Biden responded with his signature line contrasting the gains of Wall Street versus the cratering economy of Main Street. And when Trump sought to paint Biden as a puppet of socialist forces, his opponent pushed back with a forcefulness that has been absent for much of his campaign. Biden said Trump is very confused and must think he's running against Bernie Sanders. One of the most heated moments of the night focused on Trump's policy of separating migrant children from their families at the border. Advocates have been unable to locate the parents of 545 children who were separated. Trump responded when asked about this by asserting that the separated children are, quote, so well taken care of. Then he pressed moderator Kristen Welker of NBC to ask Biden who built the cages. He implied it was Obama. Biden, appearing the angriest he had been the entire debate, shook his head and said the family separations made the United States the laughingstock of the world. When the night was done, Tolu Olerupia, Amy Wang, and Josh Dossi say there was little sense that the incumbent, who's trailing significantly in the polls while overseeing a deadly pandemic and a crushed economy, did much to change his fortunes for the better. While the night featured a number of sharp attack lines, it was definitely less combative and acrimonious than what we saw in Cleveland. From the earliest moments, the contrast was clear. Biden walked in wearing a mask while Trump walked in without one. Trump has recently mocked Biden for wearing a mask and equivocated on their usefulness even after he got COVID. For his part, Biden ran afoul of the facts at times as he made his case against Trump. At one point, Biden claimed that no one lost their health insurance during the Obama administration, which is not true. He also appeared to apologize for the immigration record of the Obama administration, which included large numbers of deportations and no comprehensive legislation to help undocumented immigrants. Biden said, quote, we made a mistake. It took too long to get it right. Biden's biggest gaffe of the night, though, came when he said his goal is to get rid of the oil industry, which may reverberate in swing states. The Democrats spoke to reporters traveling with him to Nashville after the debate. He said what he meant to say was not that he's going to get rid of fossil fuels, especially right away, but that we're going to get rid of subsidies for fossil fuels. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as the week comes to an end. Number one, the 73,000 new COVID infections recorded in America on Thursday was the highest daily count since mid-July. Twelve states reached their highest seven-day average for new cases yet, and another thousand or so Americans died. All 62 residents of a nursing home in Kansas have tested positive for the virus, and 10 are dead. At least 49 cases have been linked to a church gathering in Maine, where masks were not widely worn. As the contagion spreads like wildfire among us, experts at the FDA spent yesterday debating the planned standards for quickly clearing a vaccine for broad use. The FDA's advisory committee, in an all-day virtual meeting, did not consider any specific vaccine. The session served in large part as a venue for the agency to try to reassure the public that any vaccine will be held to a high standard, not the relatively low bar that's been used this year for emergency use authorizations for other treatments. But Carolyn Johnson, who covered the meeting all day, reports that committee members weren't all convinced. Some questioned whether there should be a longer minimum follow-up of people in clinical trials to detect more potential side effects before a vaccine is cleared for widespread use. The FDA has said it wants a median of two months for follow-up. The panel also debated whether trials that are designed primarily to measure whether vaccines prevent any, any cases of disease, which could be just mild illness, might result in a product that does not prevent hospitalizations in more severe cases. Vaccine trials are being closely watched to ensure that they reflect the diversity of the U.S. population, which is important for public health reasons, And Moderna's enrollment was slowed last month to recruit more racial minorities. Now, 37% of Moderna's participants are minorities. And in other good news, people over 65, another population that's at elevated risk, make up 25% of the study. And Cincinnati Children's Hospital has just expanded its Pfizer vaccine trial to include 12 to 15-year-olds. They want to see what side effects the vaccine could have with preteens and teens. And the FDA formally approved yesterday the regular use of remdesivir for treating COVID, that antiviral drug, which Trump received while hospitalized at Walter Reed, was already being used under the emergency use authorization, but now it's much easier for doctors to get and prescribe. Up on Capitol Hill, Senate Republicans fumed yesterday as Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin gave more ground to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in talks about a potential stimulus package. Mnuchin is committed to a top-line figure of 1.9 trillion, which is much too high for a lot of Senate conservatives to swallow. That includes at least 300 billion for state and local aid, also a non-starter for many in the GOP. The Treasury Secretary is also giving ground on multiple specific policy issues, like reducing payments that Republicans wanted to go to farmers in red states so that more money could go to food pantries instead. Mnuchin has left open the possibility of allowing even more money to flow to states and localities via community development block grants, which is what Democrats want. One top Senate GOP aide told my colleague Erica Werner that Mnuchin negotiates harder with his own side than he does with Democrats. Those complaints come as Pelosi voiced optimism that they can get a deal done before the election. Pelosi knows that she has leverage because Trump wants a big new deal before the vote. Pelosi said yesterday that she and Mnuchin are almost fully agreed upon when it comes to a national coronavirus testing strategy, which Democrats have been pushing for. But then she said they are far apart on a few other issues, including the aid to state and local governments, but also liability protections for businesses, which is what Republicans want. Number two, the president just fired his biggest broadside yet against the federal bureaucracy by issuing an executive order that would remove job security for an estimated tens of thousands of civil servants, and in doing so, dramatically remake the federal government. The directive strips long-held civil service protections from employees whose work involves policymaking, allowing them to be dismissed with little cause and no recourse, much like political appointees who come and go with every administration. This would apply to federal scientists, attorneys, regulators, public health experts, and many others in senior roles. They would lose rights to due process, and in some cases, they would lose union representation at agencies across the government. The White House refuses to say how many jobs would be swept into a class of employees with fewer civil service rights, but experts and union leaders estimate to Lisa Ryan and Eric Yoder that it would impact anywhere from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands in a federal workforce of 2.1 million. This would be a profound reimagining of the career workforce, but one that may end up more as a statement of purpose than anything else. The order fast tracks a process that gives agencies until January 19th to review potentially effective jobs for designating whether they should be civil service protected or not. That's just a day before the inauguration. And a Biden administration would be unlikely to allow these changes to proceed. Still, this is a stunning effort to reshape large parts of the nonpartisan government, which is supposed to serve as a cadre of subject matter experts to help any administration, Republican or Democrat. Congressman Don Byer, a Democrat whose Northern Virginia district includes about 85,000 federal workers, said that this order, if enacted, would usher in loyalty tests and further politicize agencies that have become deeply partisan workplaces under Trump. Number three. While the Trump administration has highlighted the threat Iran poses to the U.S. election, senior U.S. intelligence officials stress that a different foe, Russia, remains the more potent adversary. And they have, in recent months, stolen data from at least two county systems in California and Indiana. That previously has not been reported. My colleagues Ellen Nakashima, Shane Harris, and Devlin Barrett say that in one of those cases, no election data was known to have been taken, and in the second, a small sample of publicly available voter information was stolen. The good news, based on what we know, is that this level of activity so far pales in comparison to what the Russians did to us in 2016. Though Iran's actions so far have been fairly amateurish in their own way, they nonetheless have riled Democratic voters who received ominous emails earlier this week. But one U.S. official said that in the grand scheme of things, what Iran has done was pretty minor. He said they had to nip it in the bud to prevent it from getting out of hand and emboldening others to do more. But the emphasis on Iran is consistent with the Trump administration's larger animosity toward Tehran, whose economy it has squeezed through crippling sanctions aimed at limiting the regime's nuclear program and curbing its aggressiveness in the region. On Thursday, the administration imposed new sanctions on the Bayan Rasana Gostar Institute, which is linked to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, for interfering in our 2020 election. Intelligence officials believe that the institute was behind those faked emails to Democratic voters. The Treasury Department also levied new sanctions for election interference on four other entities, including the IRGC. Meanwhile, back here at home, early voting counts show a record level of civic participation before Election Day. At least 47.1 million people have now voted nationwide. At this point in 2016, 23 million votes had been cast early. Registered Democrats are outvoting Republicans by a large margin in states that provide partisan breakdowns of early balloting. Republicans, however, are much more likely to tell pollsters that they intend to vote in person. And the GOP is counting on an overwhelming share of the Election Day vote going to Trump. At least 23 million people have voted so far in states that are considered battlegrounds in the presidential election. The critical question for Democrats is whether these early ballots are additional voters or just people who would have voted for Democrats on Election Day anyway. One of the Americans who voted early yesterday is Katie Rubens. She voted from the International Space Station, 250 miles away from the Earth. If she can vote, you can too. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, October 23rd. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnik, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Hellman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.